G'day and welcome to Occupied. My name's Brock Cook and this is your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I had the amazing pleasure to talk to Louise Sanguine, uh, originally from New Zealand, OT, who is now residing in Canada with an expertise and a really real passion for acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, I wanted to explore with her how OTs might be able to use this in an occupation-based way, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, so I truly hope that you guys will too. How did OT find you? OT, how did OT find me? Well... Take yourself back, maybe 1995-ish it was, and I'm in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. Do you know Hawke's Bay? No. Oh, Napier. Napier's the city, Hawke's Bay's like the province. And so everybody's kind of getting ready to go to university. We're talking about it, right? We're in our sort of last year or the second to last year of high school and talking about it, but everybody's sort of talking about their OE where they're going to go and you need to kind of have your your sort of degrees and stuff to go overseas. So I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I had no idea. I didn't really have a good sense of self. I just liked having fun, you know, just doing whatever. And mum actually works with OTs. So she came home one day and she said, well, you know, I know you like kids. I know, you, you know, you're caring, those sort of things. So go spend a day with this OT and this OT worked in kind of like a community um I think it was the clubhouse model do you remember yeah 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 yeah. so it was kind of based on that so I went for the day and I was like cool (laughs) looks like a pretty chill job don't really know what's going on here but it kind of resonated with me to a point I wasn't sure what it was but it was just something that I don't know, something that resonated with me. So then I applied for Auckland and Otago, actually, but I really wanted to go to Otago. Like, I think my main motive was to get to Otago. And there was an OT school there. So I applied for that and I got an interview. And then in those days, I'm not sure if it is now or not, but I went to this interview and there was 120 people there. Jeez. And then so um, the whole of New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. And this is just for the Dunedin one, right? I didn't even get an interview, nothing for Auckland. Yep. It was just different. And so, but that was fine. So um went to this group interview and did this. I can't, I can't really remember it, but we were in groups and yep. then they picked 90 from that and then put us into a computer and I was randomly selected or the 60 in the class, and then kind of went and, and did it from wow. there. So that's how I got in it. And slowly, you know, you start to understand it better and kind of find your way and your passion. And actually, when I was thinking about this, I've cleaned up the basement recently, and I found a whole bunch of um, stuff from school. Yep. From Yeah, and all of what I brought over to Canada is really relevant to what I do today. Things that really stuck with me, like moho. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of object relations um, stuff, sensory integration stuff that was sensory processing stuff that in the 90s was a little bit more controversial than now. But we did have, 
we did have a couple of, um, not a couple, we had a whole semester of sensory stuff. Yep. Um, yeah, that kind of amalgamates into what I do now and where my passions are. So it's kind of cool. I don't think I've kept anything from university. <laughs> Just trying to think. I don't. Yeah. I don't even. Have where did a, you study? I studied here at James Cook Uni. Oh, did you? So oh, cool. I've come full circle. So now you're back lecturing there. Now I'm back, passing oh, on, okay. passing on my bad habits to the <laughs> to the next generation of OTs. Yeah, no, I I don't even think I have the digital files anymore. Yeah, and they're all crumpled up in this kind of like '90s typewriter <laughs> type, you know, thing with high, you know, you highlight everything on it because it's all just new and important. And yeah, so it was... <laughs> so where did you go once you'd finished uni? Where did you end up? I actually went to Auckland. I did a year or just under a year. At, uh, at the hospital on the North Shore. And then I uh, decided to come here to, um, I wanted to go to Whistler or Vancouver and wanted to come here for a year. Um, so I left one of those uh, right trips. on the week. <laughs> yeah, one year uh, it, it was um, the goal. And then so I left just after se- the week of September the 11th, 2001. Uh-huh, and okay. flew, yeah, flew through LA and that was quite the experience. And I was like, oh, I don't know, because, you know, you're just kind of walking around and this chaos has happened and you just feel so small, like this little Kiwi not knowing what's going on. And I had a few problems there, actually. And then I came into Canada and was on the wrong work permit. So, yeah. And so while I worked that out, that was quite trying to figure out how to work as an OT here on my own. I was quite young. Yep. And then so I ended up having to go. Um, I did get a job and I ended up, but it was um, had to go where no other Canadian could wanted to go, I guess. So I went to Northern Alberta <laughs> and um, yeah, that was, that was good. It was interesting. So it's um, like rural or? Very rural. Yep. Um, I mean, really good professionally as the only OT up there. I arrived and there was something like 500 referrals on my desk. And so I kind of got to pick and choose where I wanted to work. And so, of course, I kind of headed towards the schools, pediatrics. And um, I did all areas. Yep. Um, Yeah, but I kind of was more passionate about those areas and ended up meeting a lady that um, she got me some training for fetal alcohol and I was on a specialised team there for assessment. Yep. And then also she did a lot of sensory stuff. So I kind of did that, but... At the same time, I mean, northern Alberta, it's like dark eight months of the year and uh, like all day or night, minus 40. And then in the summertime, it's light. You have to, it's it's so confusing and it was so hard for me personally to kind of be there. But my my passion was to stay in this country and work yeah, in yeah. Vancouver for Whistler. So I just carried on. But Yeah. So where, how did you, did you end up in Vancouver and Whistler? I did. I did. As soon as my, so it took about 18 months to get a work permit um, because of lots and lots of different problems. And then when I got my proper work permit, I was able to move anywhere. Or my, it was permanent residency, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I could work anywhere and I went straight back to Vancouver 
and moved around a little bit around BC. I worked in the Okanagan. I don't know if you do you know anything about Canada. Geography is not my strong point. <laughs> I know it's above America. It gets cold, and there's lots of OTs there. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. So we moved around a bit and did different things, and um, yeah, it was it was interesting, kind of seeing how OT works and. In other countries, you know. So how did you how did you get onto ACT? How did you get onto acceptance and commitment therapy? Well, I guess well when I was back in high level there, I was it was a difficult time for me, and I actually did a CBT course when I was there. I got CBT trained when I was around that area. My favorite. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, using it on myself, of course, and I just don't, I just didn't find that CBT did it for for me anyway. Um, So, yeah, I ended up, yeah, that's when I was kind of moving around and I did end up actually here. I've lived here a couple of times here where I am now in Calgary and I worked on an inpatient unit for adolescents. And I was really just like, what is this profession doing? Like, what are we doing here? I was starting to get really discouraged with what they expected, you know, and other people telling me what I should be doing in my role. And then I would say, you know, no, this is what OTs do, but you get that backlash sometimes. And so it's just really, you know, and I shared an a office with a family counsellor and she was listening to a DBT. She was getting trained in DBT at that time. Mm. It was about 2007. And so I was listening to this and I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, just listening in, I I kind of, not all of it, but I kind of, some of it resonated with me. So I went out to try to find some more information. I found this book and it was called uh, Acceptance and Commitment for Depression or something like that. So I started to read it and I was like, oh, I really like this. But what it turned out to be was an, was an act book, not a DVD. Yeah. So I really kind of liked it from then, from about 2007, but it, but I was working with teenagers, right? So there was a part of me who was like, oh, I don't know about this, this model for teens. You know, I didn't really look into it too much more till about two, uh, la- um, January last year, 2018 January. Yep. And I'm, st- I'm still working with teens, but I'm in an outpatient program and I came across Tim, actually, Timothy Gordon, and he does um, for um, adolescent children and act for children and adolescents. So I did his his workshop and then kind of got into it more from there and realized, you know, there's lots of OTs in this community. It's a really nice community, really helpful, and they're really welcoming and open to OTs. Yep. I was just kind of learning more and then I got trained in the developmental model or the youth model of that and kind of just went from there and really resonated with me and what I do. It fits with OT in my opinion really well, much more congruent than like CBT or DBT, which is kind of like, you know, don't adapt what we do, adopt what we do. And and it's more rigid, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. ACT has these processes that we... That, that even we use some of the processes yeah. as, as OTs already. So, um, yeah, that was kind of what happened. And then as I got into it, I was like, realised there was some special interest groups, so I decided to try to start one and it, and it, it, worked, it happened. 
And so now we have this kind of special interest groups for OTs within ACT and met some really cool people around the world. Yeah. That's awesome. So for those who don't know, what is ACT? Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Just ACT is really about just assisting ourselves and other people to recognize when fighting, avoiding, attempting to escape and suppress our painful experiences. It just doesn't work. And when accepting that pain, it's a more workable way to move forward in our lives. And so it, it really is about accepting what uh, comes up for us instead of trying to avoid escape and control what we don't want to feel. But it really comes from um, a philosophy of science called functional contextualism. And I actually think that OT really falls into this round too. So function meaning what works in context, meaning in a certain situation. So what do you know about, do you know anything about the... Not about not about the background stuff. No, act itself is relatively popular here. I haven't done the training, but I've worked with a lot of OTs that have. That's awesome, and you have a couple of those books. Remember? I do have a couple of a couple of uh, Russ Harris's books that I showed you the yeah. other day. Yep. Yeah, and he's awesome. So it's just really about. Um, not having to rid ourselves of what we already do as OTs, but kind of bringing in these processes from this functional, contextual kind of way. Um, so it is based on relational frame theory, and that and relational frame theory helps us understand how humans bring our thoughts and emotions, sensations and feelings, and everything from previous experiences or outside of the present moment, and how we relate with them. So, for example. You're a, you're a lecturer, right? I am at the moment, yes. So if one of your students wanted to know if you were in a bad mood, they could ask each other before coming to see you. So they could know that um, you're not really feeling in a good mood today just by somebody else saying that. They don't have to be in the presence of you to know that. Okay, yep. So that's how um, we can bring things that have happened in the past that haven't even happened in this moment to the current situation. And so that's that's what relational frame theory is. And it's, um, it's a whole bunch of science and there's books and stuff on it. It gets really complicated. Yep. Um, which is difficult to explain. And I don't don't really want to confuse people with that, but there is tons of information on that if people are interested in that more kind of science kind of side of things so it's kind of more like more the contextual knowledge even though you haven't actually experienced it yet it's information about the context you might be going into or that kind of thing is that sort of the yeah cool yep okay that makes sense yep and and so that can that's good because then we kind of know things before um you know from other experiences that's good but it also can get us in into painful situations or avoidance situations as well you know a person that um it has a cost to it sometimes the way that we respond um to our internal thoughts and feelings and we kind of narrow our life because we become rigid and we get into these kind of rigid rules and we don't go forth uh, with with what we want in our lives, right? We let our painful stuff kind of uh, take over, and so that's that's a part of what ACT um, focuses on. With this, it's got six core processes, and um, that is actually the therapy um, based on this 
kind of theories that we have here. And I'd imagine there would be, uh, like it's part of the theory, it would be some sort of inherent bias because then you're kind of up on at the whim of where your information's coming from as well. So, yeah, you know, if that person who, say in your example, the student that sort of is telling everyone else that, say, I'm in a cranky mood, if they're just projecting because they're in a cranky mood, then then everyone else gets, I guess, almost a, not an incorrect, but a a heavily biased view of the context that they may be going into. That's right. Yep. And so, yeah, that other person might have had context with you in another situation that, Mm. that made them think that or with another person. Right. So really looking at how this internal language really functions um, for us in our in our daily lives. And so what um, what happens is um, it, it how we kind of explain it is in the model. It's actually a model underlying the act processes is the model of psychological flexibility. And uh, that's how we kind of describe, or the ACT community describe the whole ACT model of health. And see it as more flexible than, say, the DSM or something like that. Um, it's just a whole model of health yep. with the six processes on top of that. Okay. So the six processes are all independent, but they also amalgamate together as well. Um, and they're all mediated for change. So even if you just used one process, which is pretty hard to do, um, to use one process, it still is mediated for change. So the six processes are acceptance, diffusion, present moment, self as context, values, and commitment or committed action. And it's the last two that I really feel is really strong in our profession in, in OT, um, is the values and the committed action piece there. And then the inverse of psychological flexibility would be um, inflexibility or rigidity. Yep. So acceptance um, is basically practicing openness to private events. So private events would be your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and memories. So with that, you know, it's not just looking at the outside behavior or helping that. It actually is for the inside um, what they call behavior, because it is based on behaviorism. It's not based on Buddhism, yeah, as yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people think it is. But it's actually these are, you know, have all been tested and trialed in in, in a scientific way. So, because the term um, acceptance can have lots of different meanings, it's important to note that um, it really means a willingness to come in contact with a person's whole experience, and um, including the unpleasant ones. So a little bit like the process that you saw me go through with with this, with doing this podcast. <laughs> yes, for those, obviously, no one else would know, you were quite, I was going to say scared, but probably quite anxious about doing it originally. Yeah, I mean, this type of thing is kind of important to me and I'm a a podcast virgin right like I I haven't done this before and so these feelings of um, fear but excitement kind of can't come up together and this is a part of kind of holding these things lightly when they come up and and doing what matters and what matters for me was doing this um, not being not being like 
so that so the um, inverse or the other side of acceptance would be the experiential avoidance. So I would push it away, say, yeah, this, um, you know, these feelings aren't here and I might might not have done it, right? And I, I guess too, as in using that as an example, and we can probably just use that and build on that throughout these, but like what we are talking about before with the, uh, and I've already forgotten what it's called, the underpinnings, like the contextual information, like you then based your next decision about whether or not to do this podcast on me telling you what it was going to be like and how it was going to work, which although may have helped, definitely came with a heavy bias because I don't get anxious doing this and I've done it a lot. It's not the first time I've ever done one of these. So Yeah. What was it like for you when you first lectured? Very first time? Oh, that was a long time ago. I was I would have been a little bit nervous, but public speaking actually that's a lie. Public speaking when I was younger used to scare the crap out of me, but I think because the first few times I used to do like guest lectures and stuff, it was on topics that I knew inside and out. So that made it a lot more comfortable. I kinda of almost ease into it. Um by the time I actually got a job lecturing, I I'd done it quite a few times. It didn't didn't worry me. I just was now doing it much more regularly. So Right. And so you kind of got that um, kind of competence in it as well, right? Mm. So, and that helps with um, accepting and kind mm. of the confidence that comes with it too. But, but generally to get that confidence, you kind of have to, you, you do the action first and then um, the feelings kind of catch up with you. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, and if we're always focusing on avoiding um, these unpleasant things it's pretty difficult to live kind of a meaningful life because a lot of the times the things that are meaningful have the flip side of the coin which has some pain to it too and I, I'm um, very much a deep end learner I'll dive in and then work it out once I'm in there so yeah I know a lot of other people I, I do like to plan I'm very heavy on planning things but when it comes to things that I am more comfortable with like slight variations of my comfort zone i'll just dive in and then work it out anything with tech anything with like this sort of thing just do it and then sort it out along the way kind of thing whereas if it's something completely new for me uh i will plan it to the nth degree (laughs) before i do anything yeah and that's how a little bit like how i felt that i i wanted to be for this and especially you're talking kind of, you know, sort of this scientific thing that sometimes I'm, you know, you don't know who's going to listen to this and take it the wrong way and things like that. So those sort of thoughts were were showing up with me, for me, um, for sure, you know, you know, that story of ah, people are going to think you're a bit of a fraud and are you really an OT and things like that. But, Poster syndrome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that shows up, right? But I think that kind of leads on to um, the next process, which is diffusion. Mm -hmm. And diffusion is um, a made-up word. Um, And it, yeah, it just places focus on the the cognitive uh, component. Um, So it encourages awareness of private experiences and your response to them and what happens as a result to that. So how do you kind of, when, when these thoughts and stories show up, do you um, join with them and take them as literal? Like um, a thought would show up that 
um, you're going to screw this up. And then I would say, you know what, Brock, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Something came up. So I'm letting it dictate what I do next and yep. how I respond to my thoughts. So it's not about changing the thought or trying to think positive when these things, it's more like noticing that your mind is here to protect you and it has a job. And its job is to protect you and problem solve and compare you to others because that's survival and, and that's what our mind's been evolved to do. Um, but it's not always um, workable. It's not always helpful. And so that's what we're looking at is, um, you you know, with all of these processes when uh, when they do show up and when these thoughts and feelings show up, a big part of ACT is that we're kind of taking a step back so that we have a choice of of how are we going to respond to these things. And so diffusion has a lot of, you know, activities and things that you can do with that process. So what's the goal? of the, Is the goal just to accept the thought that's coming in or is it to push it aside for now or what's the, the goal no, no, of no. the diffusion? It wouldn't, be to, it wouldn't be to push it aside. It's, it's more like um, being with it. So um, noticing and acknowledging it and naming that the feeling is there. Yep. Um, but letting it kind of pass in due time, kind of letting the organism heal, you know, letting it pass because the feelings, you know, one feeling only lasts, um, you know, sort of two minutes. Um, but what happens is we get other feelings on top of those feelings. Yep. And, and then that makes it feel like it goes on for a long period of Compounds, time, yep. longer, longer than it is. So, um, acceptance and diffusion kind of work hand in hand that together it's kind of the openness um, openness to thoughts and feelings that arise. Now, these are openness to thoughts and feelings. This is not acceptance of a situation. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're not saying, yeah, accept, you know, your your abuse and, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, things like that. If you can make a change for sure, but that kind of comes with other parts of the model. But it's more like, and there's lots of um, activities and things that you can do to kind of practice these. Um, I mean, these are kind of mindfulness, um, the beginning or, or two, two of the four processes of mindfulness. Yep. And, yeah, not mindfulness meditation, although that's a part of it, but being present in the, in the moment, right? So it really it's just um, diffusions creating choice. And um, so it gives you a choice and, and so that you're not going to be automatic. Yeah, so um, the inverse of um, diffusion is, of course, fusion. You take your thoughts literal, you respond in the automatic way you already, you always have, um, you know, since you were young, and you just use the same strategies and you just carry on um, responding in the in the way that you always have. So with the, and I'm trying to like think of this in the simplest, most general way, because maybe I'm just simple. Um, the diffusion uh, uh, section seems process. to be yeah. process. That's the word. Uh, it seems to be more you deciding who has the power, like yourself or the feelings that are coming up. So you're deciding whether or not you want to, you know, you know, trying to do anything with the feelings. You're just deciding whether or not to give them power over yourself or your decision and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Awesome. Got it. Yep. So those first two, if we're looking at acceptance um, and diffusion for us as clinicians or as OTs, um, these are not a rigid set of techniques that you would be doing. They're mm. process 
So it's super easy to bring into like OTs that work in vivo. You can do it with them in the moment of something, which is awesome because a lot of a lot of people are stuck in a room trying to do these processes, whereas OTs are out and about more involved in the occupation of of people's daily lives. And what, what sort if, of what sort of things would they be like? What sort of things would you do? Just examples. Um, well, I work in a setting where I am generally kind of stuck in a room yeah. at times. So, but for me, I work with teenagers. So if you're trying to um, use these processes, something that I have done is kind of go for a, we'll, we'll go for a walk and start to notice um, using our senses, what we see on the outside, but also what's going on for us on the inside. Um, one girl I had the other day, we went, she comes from a horrible kind of background, trauma background. And so we we went to do some more practical kind of practice of being in the present moment and noticing. It's really about noticing what's going on for you in this moment and naming it. And for teenagers, they don't automatically do that. They're all, you know, a lot of people actually don't automatically do this. Some more focused on the outside. But for her with her trauma history, we actually went past a couple, they were having a fight. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of noticing what came up for her in that moment was her tummy went squirrely, um, her, um, you know, her mouth went dry and she was kind of starting to shake. So just some of those things that were coming back, right? So you sit and you kind of process that at the time. Now, this is me just being creative. I use a lot of art. I have to use a lot of art and music and and things like that because I'm working with, um, with teenagers. But... You know, if you look at other settings that OTs work in rehab settings, there's, um, I was just talking to a lady, she just, uh, in the ACT community, and I'm going to be meeting with her soon. Her name is Gracia, and uh, she's created a model for OTs and PTs in rehab or in pain management with OT, I mean, with uh, PT, OT, and ACT. So the model is called uh, Active Body Framework. And so she's just created that and that's coming out soon. So she would have more of those other ways to how to bring the process in to, into those sort of uh, settings. Yep. And I, I yeah, it's different. I have worked with, um, in, uh, with teenagers and in, in mental health for 12 years now. So I really just relate it to, to mine, but yeah, yeah. in the act community, there's lots of people that work in pain. Do you know Bronnie? Bronnie Thompson, Bronnie yes. Lennox Thompson. I do. You do know her? Yes. Oh, do you? There you go. So she is lovely, right? She um, is the pain guru. Yeah, she's really involved in this community and has done some great work and has those websites that, yeah. that are really helpful. Her, right? blog, her blog's amazing. I don't know how she gets so much information and puts it out there. Yeah, she's, she's brilliant. And um, so... It's just nice. I mean, I created this special interest group, but I don't do the work. Right? Yeah. Like, uh, these are the people that are doing the the studies and the and the work, and I just kind of um, bring it all together. Yeah, bring it together, promote it. So okay, so that's so the activities you're doing with regards to that are very much around, I guess, opening the space for self reflection and being able to look at what's what's going on inside based on, you know, whatever's happening. So it might be, like you said, it could be sitting there, could be meditating if that's their thing, but it could be 
going for walks. It could be whatever that person, I guess, relates to with regards to self-reflection, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Noticing in the moment. So you might even, um, to put it in the context of somebody doing a home visit after they've been in hospital, and there's all sorts of emotions and sensations and memories coming up for them from when the last time they went home and they ended up having a fall. Yeah. And um, so there's this resistance to to do what matters, which is to go home. So how how can OTs use these processes in the moment to kind of notice and and work with our clients around this? internal experiences that are coming up for them in the moment um, that are, that would be appropriate. Like it would be appropriate for somebody to, to be nervous about going home if they've fallen a lot, right? So how can we as OTs kind of bring these processes into that moment to kind of normalize and name and support these kind of things um, that do come up? So we kind of... T- um, bringing the processes into the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess that just made me reflect. I, I process things as I'm talking, so I go off on tangents, and this is going to be one of those tangents. But I think yeah. one of the, the things that I really have noticed, like there is a big push for occupation-based practice, and I am a 1,000% behind that. But I, in talking with OTs who are implementing that or trying to increase their occupation-based practice in their workplace, I think a lot of people forget, or I don't think it's that they forget, it's probably that they're just not trained to look at those internal processes that go along with that. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, we very much look at, you know, the occupations and that sort of thing, but looking at what that occupation is going to bring up for someone or, you know, is it going to be a positive or a negative experience from an internal point of view? Like, yeah, okay, they're engaged in an occupation and, you know, it, it might be health positive for them, but mentally, even even what, like not working in a mental health setting, you can. it's still important that you're able to look at these internal processes. And I think, I think this is yeah. one area... And I think that's probably why it resonates with me. And granted, I've always worked, always worked in mental health, so this sort of stuff has always been on my radar. But mm-hmm. I think this is one area where OTs kind of, and this is a massive generalization because I know there are people that don't, but we've kind of dropped the ball. Yeah, and we're right there in it, right? And that kind of mm. brings up the whole therapeutic use of self. Yeah. And- and how we can use these with us um, in that moment. You know, is there a client that you're just thinking, man, they're just so negative all the time. Like, are you fusing with your thoughts that this client is the problem? Mm. You know, and instead of putting it back on yourself and going, you know, how can I, a little bit like what Scott Miller's saying, how can I, I'm involved in this process and this burden's on me to, to, to help this person, not on my client, the burden's on me. So how can I... What do I have to do to diffuse from the thinking that that um, you know these stuck stories and assumptions about our clients, and how can we go forward, kind of um, you know not shying away or avoiding the uncomfortableness that comes up for us as we help our clients? Yeah, yeah. So where yeah. so once what's the next process? Where do we go from there? Um, so the next process. So these are all on a on a diagram, right? So they're the first two on the left-hand side. Now the middle would be present moment. 
And it's similar to what we're talking about here um, now because they all overlap, right? They're separate but overlap. Yep, as a lot of OT models tend to do. <laughs> that's right. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So it all kind of mixed into one, but it, it orients people to the present moment and encouraging their awareness of their experience here and now. So not having their thoughts um, or being being um, on autopilot kind of, um, and it also encourages awareness of your private experiences, your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and memories, and, um, and acknowledging how in this moment right now that influences you. So in in regards to, say, you coming on the podcast, how did that play out with the being present? Well, it would be right now. Okay, so it's actually doing it? Yeah, so if I was, um, it's like right now I'm fully present with you. Mm -hmm. I am am noticing in the background my son has come around a couple of times. He's trying to see you. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm noticing it, but it's almost like it's in the background, right? So. You're, I'm right here present with you. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to do after this yep. and I'm not thinking about what I was doing before. So is it more, is it still to do with the internal processes around that as well or is it more around like actually physically being present in the, the moment? Both. So I'm aware of what's going outside and I'm aware of me right now. Like I notice um the feelings of anxiety, like in my tummy, they've they've gone down from yep. when we first started. Good. Like I'm feeling my <laughs> shoulders have, yeah, I'm feeling my shoulders have gone down. So I'm noticing that, um, noticing my mouth is getting a bit dry because I'm talking and and things like that. So so really bringing it back into the present moment, and also not letting things on the outside that you notice kind of distract you from what you're doing, and you just come back and people can definitely practice these processes by doing mindfulness meditation Mm. Uh, but people don't um, stick with it for too long in general right and and how hard is it to to get your clients and go do mindfulness meditations and you know that's not something that is workable all the time so this process is really about coming back and being present in in this moment now I think with regards to the mindfulness meditation, I think a lot of people, yeah, we can promote it, but unless there is a reason, like people don't have a reason to do it, like, well, okay, what's it going to do for me? Why am I doing it? Oh, you're going to be calm and happy. I'm like, that's a bit broad. Like I need, like I, I'm in the middle. Actually, I'm not in the middle. I'm about, today's the last day. I did a month uh, challenge. Actually, did a bit longer than that, but I set myself a month challenge. I was going to meditate every day for this this month and today's the last day yay go me um awesome but like i had a purpose for it and it was to be more because i found myself getting very distracted and i wasn't able to concentrate for periods of time so the the purpose of it was for me to be able to sit down and you know they're only sort of 10 12 minute little sessions but to be able to do that and try and hold that attention for that period of time. And I think one of the big things for me was, yeah, like I'm going from nothing to that. Don't be so hard on yourself if it doesn't work sometimes. So it's a matter of going, well, okay, yep, today didn't, you know, I I wasn't able to or I struggled to hold attention for that whole period. But, you know, I had, you know, half of it say that was really, really good and really intense and, you know, tomorrow, new day, I'll try it again. So 
from that yeah. point of view, like actually having a purpose, I think helps other than just, you know, you, you've got to meditate. I'm like, well, why? Like, and if I didn't have a purpose, if like I was actually, I was actually reflecting last night. If I don't have a purpose, like now this challenge is over, like, am I going to keep doing it every day? And I guess for me, and I'm very goal orientated, I need something to work towards. So yeah. I, I will, if I don't, have another goal then I, I won't do it it just won't happen so I'll, I'll have to have a think about that and reflect on that but I think I see it from that point of view like you need with regards to meditation specifically and anything really you, you kind of need a purpose you can't just do it so I think meditation in this instance is probably a really good tool because if you're going through this pro- process then there is a purpose of it um, yeah. so it, it may yeah. help but if there's not and you're just doing it for you know you're trying to be is this general health. It's like a lot of things. People when they're like exercising or something, if they don't have a goal, people don't stick to it. Like if they've got a weight yeah. loss goal or they've got a you know, a sports performance goal that they're training for, it's much easier to stick to that because let's be honest, training sucks. No one likes it. Pra- yep. Practice sucks. Yeah. No one likes it. They like the outcome of it, which, you know, is peak performance or, you know, fitting a some clothes that you haven't fit in years or whatever your goal is, but actually getting there is not always that fun. No, it's not. And that's how I practice my present moment awareness. Like hmm. I I could be distracted by anything. I would even clean, you know, but when I am doing the exercise, I'm I'm there in that moment. I bring myself back. So that's how I practice uh, mindfulness in the moment. And, and with ACT, it's not about um, decreasing um, the units of distress. Um, mindfulness meditation is a lot about relaxation uh, and things like that. But in this process, in this context for, for ACT, it's about being in the present moment so you can make a choice to do what matters. Mm. And so there's two different like aims of doing it there. Yes, mindfulness meditation will help build that, uh, that skill, but that's not the purpose of it within mm. ACT. To, to, to relax at all, actually, the purpose is always to, to do what matters. And then, uh, you know, over time, the, the units of the subjective units of distress or suds, whatever, they, they could decrease, but they might not. And so um, in this process, and, and it's really difficult to explain these processes, and a lot of people in ACT will, will do it. So you're doing ACT instead of um, talking about it. Yeah. And, yeah. So that's um, the the two different parts of the the present moment awareness and, and there with the mindfulness meditation. But I was just thinking, actually, um, there might be a, a few people listening to this from the ACT community that might not know what occupation is. And we've mentioned it a few times. So I just wanted to see if you had a definition, a quick, easy definition for occupation. Uh, my quick and dirty definition is it's everything we do that occupies our time. So we don't look at it as in occupation as in like a job, occupation as in occupies time. So yeah. any any activity that occupies your time uh, that has meaning and value to that person, we would look at as an occupation. So, meaning and value, nice. That's yeah. it. That's the important bit and a lot of people forget that. But that's a whole other rant of mine for another oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> The thing, what was that thing? Things we have to do, want to do, and are expected to do. Yep. Um, yeah, they occupy our time. Yep. So it's pretty broad. Yeah. So it can be, yeah, it's a lot of people get 
stuck on the occupation as in like job that sort of definition but yeah we're looking at we're looking at time not employment so we are we are the time masters in a way i like that time not employment yeah yeah so if we were to relate um the present moment to ourselves um as as ot's in that moment it would be are we being present with our clients in that moment or are we thinking of the next client or are we writing our notes when we're with the client when they're doing something Hmm. how present are we to kind of get that felt sense with them so that they know that we're um paying attention and and not thinking about things yeah so right Um, right now me and you are engaging in the occupation of recording a podcast so yeah and that's a like you said it's about like are you fully engaged in that occupation right now or are you thinking about what comes next or you know something shitty that happened beforehand or or you know the what's going to happen on star trek next week or like like something else are you actually sort of here present not just physically but actually and i think this that's where it's probably easier for ot's to understand because we look at engagement not just not just attendance so that's that's exa- essentially what this is looking at is are you engaged in that occupation or are you just sort of here in attendance? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, engagement. Um, yeah, so that kind of brings you to the other process in this kind of category of awareness, uh, which is self as context. And self as context is just a way of experiencing yourself or experiencing oneself or um, a current term that some people use. It's like selfing. So it invites people to see themselves separate from your experience. So um, right now, like I know that I have these thoughts and feelings, but there's a part of me um, that notices those thoughts and feelings. So I'm really the person behind my eyes noticing what's going on here. And from this perspective, it just gives another sort of observer self or an opportunity for um, creating space and seeing things from a different perspective. And and these processes can be used with with youth, um, with people that would people would say have limited insight. Like there is tons of research; these are processes, and and they can be used um, with with people that don't have perspective taking all the time right that's that's a part of what this process is about um and then the inverse of self as context is, would be self as content so um you kind of get stuck you'd get stuck on who i ought to be or who i once was and they don't kind of see themselves as uh, moving uh something that's creating itself or they don't see themselves in a flexible way of changing um, experience so they get really fused with um with you know even things like diagnostic labels right yeah, they yep. with, with that sort of content so yeah so that it's more about sort of personal identity in some ways like are yeah, you, are you yeah. identifying with or well, i guess the the self as content aspect of it is anyway are you hung up on like I don't know. For example, in this, like, carry on the example of you doing the podcast. Are you more worried about, you know, your, I don't know, ex- expertise in act coming through as opposed to just, you know, getting in and having a conversation about it and showing other people what it's like, that kind of thing. Is that the sort of 
thing. Yeah, or it could be, um, so myself would be, um, you know, I'm a useless OT. I don't know anything about it. And that's how I would have come into into it and kind of um, had that stance, right? But there's a part of me that knows that I need to do something for the first time and it's going to bring up these sort of uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. There's a part of me that's like, you've been here before, you got this, Mm. right? And it's that part that I, that's your observer part, that's the true you, that's your core. And so it's not in a a spiritual way. Uh, I'm not saying it in a spiritual way, although very much this could, um, you could join this with um, other spiritual things. But remember, this is this is not based on um, Buddhism or spirituality in any yeah. way. So it is all that that other part of yourself, right? And and I know that, and I knew that, although these feelings are going to come up, um, I still am going to be moving on and this helps me grow and I'm so more flexible with how I hold that content. So this section would be where things like imposter syndrome would sort of be looked at or come into play where maybe you you don't feel like, even though you might, I I see this a lot with OT students when they first graduate, they're like, I don't know enough. I can't do this. And I always tell them, I'm like, you know more than you give yourself credit for. I'm like, try it. And then you'll realize how much you know. But they're sort of stuck in yeah. that stuck in that mindset that I'm still a student. I'm not. I haven't done enough. I'm not, I don't know enough. That kind of thing. Yeah, or even just saying I'm a student, right? So seeing ourselves only as our roles, seeing myself only as a mom, or seeing myself only as an OT. Like I'm the person behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is more transcendent. That that part of you that um, is. It's still there, even though your content changes in your life. I'm still this, this part of me is still the same from 10 years ago and 10 years forward. It will still be that, that part of me that observes that. And so the self is content would be uh, where you do get caught up in your roles and you think that that's all you are. Now, what happens when that role goes away for some reason, right? Or things change and you're no longer, um, you're no longer working as an OT or you're no, you know, who are you then? Yeah. And so it's the identity, that bigger part of identity, really. I think for me, like I'm real bad at that. I get caught up in that quite a lot. And uh, I think meditation has been one of those things that I think has actually helped me with that part of it. And I know, yeah. I know it doesn't do it for everyone, yep. but for me, one of the benefits that I get is it puts that space between you know, I don't know, public me and internal me where I can actually look at it more objectively. So I can actually go, okay, yep, you do know this or you you know that you can do this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I know that, you know, not everyone has that aspect or that um, reaction to mindful meditation, but that's definitely something that I've noticed and something I use it for. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's similar to um, the DBT, in my opinion. Um, It's similar to that DBT concept of wise mind. Um, And so it's that that wise part of yourself that kind of notices uh, what's going on. For sure. 
Yeah, that's the so present moment and self as context are kind of seen as the awareness processes in the middle there. And then we move on to um, the engagement uh, of values and committed actions. So of course, values, we all know this is OTs who and what is personally, um, what personally matters to you and it's uniquely chosen. So we're uh, very client-centered, right, and always wanting to know about the values and stuff. Hey, do you use um, do you use certain tools for values? Like, uh, do you use those Moho volitional? You know, in Moho they have that volitional kind of area of interests and values. I don't use the Moho one specifically. I know a lot of people that do, but values is something that I do a ton of work with, uh, and well, and now do a ton of teaching about. I use I use a whole range of things. A lot of it is just narrative exploration and being able to yeah. to explore values based on occupational need, based on the you know the concept that presumably people try and live to their values. So in theory, what they are doing is fitting within their values. So if you can work out patterns, uh, like if you take an occupational history and you can find patterns in the the kinds of things that people engage in, you know, throughout their lives, um, you, you can work out what their value system is. I also use like specific tools like interest cards and that sort of stuff to try and explore that as well. Values cards and all those sorts of fun things. But um, from an occupational point of view, I kind of do it the other way around in that I can work out patterns of engagement. So they might be, you know, throughout their life, uh, you know, we know that values aren't really sort of cemented in until sort of early to mid twenties. So I'd kind of look at it from then onwards. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Oh, here we be, go. This might be our first time that we disagree. Uh, don't know. I don't know. I think values. Uh, you know, I I work with teenagers, right? And who and what's important to them. Mm. And so that's the way I kind of frame it, who and what's important to you. And it's really interesting. They might say um, a lot of the times their values are the same as their parents. They're just going about them different ways. So Mm. it's interesting. They might not say school is is valuable to them, but education is. Learning is valuable to them and important to them, right? So, um, yeah, even if it's a little person, you know, who and what's important to them. And that's what I kind of like, that's how, that's what we kind of, that's the reason why we're asking them to hold these uncomfortable experiences only to do what's valuable to you. Otherwise, you know, like you're going to feel uncomfortable because it's valuable to you. Yeah. yeah. I I will clarify. I'm not saying that values aren't important before that age. I'm saying that a person's core values aren't really like cemented in for them until that age. So you still look at values before then, but before then, they they'll they'll keep adapting and changing until they get to sort of their final whatever their core values are going to be. So yeah, I'm not saying yeah. they're not important. They definitely are important, oh, and yeah. you can definitely still look at them. It just my way of doing it because I've always worked with adults as well. I've never worked with child and adolescent. My way of doing it and taking an occupational history doesn't work as well if you're looking at before yeah. that age because it's hard to pick up patterns when the underpinnings are changing. So. From that, from that sort of mid early twenties onwards, I can pick up patterns because I know the underpinnings are going to be fairly concrete. Before that, it makes it difficult, and you might have to use something different, like values cards or something that looks at more, you know, values on the at that point in time as opposed to over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, if I was going to look at, you know, how where those values have come from, I could probably still do that, and I could, I'd probably just do it with the parents as well. 
Um, yeah. what, you do you, that what do you do if you don't agree with the values? I've learnt to put that. You mean if there's like a conflict between their values and mine? Yeah, if you if you think that they're that maladaptive. Ah, <laughs> oh, um, it's not my choice to make. Nice. I can explore it, and I can you know see what the reasons were, depending on what they're engaging in. I mean, you can have, yeah. you can have, and that's the thing I try and teach my students too. Like, you can have any value and engage in something that's not exactly a health promoting occupation within that value like you can have you know values around family and and acceptance and connection and that sort of stuff and you can still be connected and and hanging around the wrong people and that's you know not positive for your health yeah you're filling that need but there's probably better ways to do it and you know you can explore i'll explore that with them but in the end it's like i'm not here to take your choice away i'm here to help like you're driving i'm just the gps I'm just here to help guide uh-huh. you a bit, so. Yeah, yeah, that's really important, I think, because there's going to be kind of problematic stuff that come along with values. Oh, that, yeah. You know, and and so um, that's where you can you kind of work with it, right? But I do know this, um, I have talked to quite a lot of OTs that have a problem with this, with the values. Yeah. Uh, of it. Well, what if, what, if, um, what if they're doing something really, you know, um, not socially appropriate, you know, what if they're having these thoughts and, and stuff like that and what do you do about it? <laughs> Say exactly what you said. It's 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 not my choice. And right? I think, but they, there's going to be problematic things that come along with it if you're, oh, yeah. you know. 100%. And I, I've, like, I've worked with, I mean, I've worked in mental health, so I've worked with a lot of people who, some of them are very, say, for example, heavy drug users. And I get a lot of the questions from students like, you know, do you have to report it or do you have to call the police or like, do you have to, like, are you condoning it? I'm like, I'm not condoning it, but it's not my choice. Like, if, if I think about it like, you know, they went over the speed limit to get to uni. I'm like, that's your choice. Yes, I'm not condoning that speeding is good, but that's your choice. Me trying mm-hmm. to form a therapeutic relationship with someone, the moment I start trying to take their choices away, that relationship's dead. Like, I, I will have no impact on that person's life after that. And yeah. I, can, I can, I've always offer support and education around their, their drug use, but the choice in the end is going to be theirs. Like, a, a, like, I might see a person for a couple hours a week. I can't be there for the rest of the, you know, however, what's that? What is that, 30, 360, or 300 and whatever it is, however many hours in the week. Like, I can't, 140-something, bad at math. Um, I can't be there for the whole time. Like, what are they going to do for the rest of it? Like, well, am I just going to record a message saying don't do drugs and they can just replay it or something? Yeah, and how workable is that, right? Exactly. Not. But what, what you can do is like, in terms of drugs anyway, like I quite often end up working from like a harm minimization model. So I've worked with people and this is the way a lot of our drug and alcohol services work. Like it's not about initially like, you know, oh, you're using, say, heroin. It's not about you know, you have to stop heroin, that's bad. It's like, okay, how can we make you safer? Like, so they get, they have needle exchanges and that sort of stuff where they can use or get clean needles so they're not sharing diseases and that sort of stuff when they're using. And then, you know, 
over time with, with support and education, they might go, okay, yeah, no, I need to stop this now. And then you're there. They know you're there because you've mm-hmm. been sort of putting yourself in that position to, well, you know, if, the, if you need support, if something's not right. Quite often in my experience, though, the reasons why people stop aren't the reasons why we think they should stop. Yeah. It'll be, we think they should stop because, you know, drugs are bad and, you know, that's what we've been taught. Drugs are bad and they're bad for your health and blah, blah, blah. Man, I've had people that, you know, oh, okay, I want to stop. It's costing me too much money. Like, it's, yeah. it's completely nothing to do with why there we think go. someone should stop. The other part of that is that by leaving the choice with them, the motivation is going to be there. Whereas if we're telling you, same as anyone, like if I tell someone to do something and it's something that they're not really sure or they don't want to do, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. You look at people, yeah. people who have kids and they're like, tell kids to clean their room. A kid doesn't want to do it until you up the ante enough with like whatever the punishment might be that they sort of, it, it then outweighs the, I guess, the, the choice of not doing it. So if the kid thinks mm-hmm. he's going to get a flogging. He might do it, man. Might do it more, more. Well, not willingly, but we'll do it. Whereas just offering them a choice or offering them a reward, or well, not necessarily a reward, but offering them a choice or an alternative, which is something that I usually offer my or would offer my clients, is usually a better way of doing it because you're tapping into their own motivation. You're not wielding the stick. You, you know. Yeah. And that's something, yeah. that's something I've worked with a lot of my guys around, like, well, like here are the benefits of you not using. One, you're going to sleep better, you're going to feel better, all those health benefits, which is the main reason that we generally think people should stop doing drugs. But there's all those other social things as well, like, you know, you're going to be able to hang out with your family more. You're going to be able to probably make new friends. You're going to be able to engage in those hobbies that you've been wanting to get back into. You're going to have more money to do that. Like, there's all these other benefits, and it's... A lot of cases, it's about finding which one of those really resonates with the person as opposed to just wielding the big stick and saying, drugs are illegal, you shouldn't be doing them. Yeah, yeah, and you you want to explore with, with them how workable it is, right? And one of the tools that I use a lot, actually, that Tim um, introduced me to was his life map. And so you're really looking at who and what's important to you. And then you're looking at um, what sort of internal experiences come up. But the next thing is you're looking at how things work. And this is what ACT is about a lot is exploring and OT is exploring how it functions, how it works. So we're not looking at the topography of what they're doing, but how it works in their lives. And then they kind of do come to those conclusions. This isn't workable anymore. I don't have any money I don't have any money left, you know, and everything, like, how does it work? Um, you know, even with self-harm, how does self-harm working in your life? You know, and that's a really good question is to look at the short term, um, the long term of what you're doing and then how the costs of it yeah, yeah. kind of helps you explore that a little bit more. And I think going sort of full circle is that's where I see for OTs anyway, having an understanding of values and how to, how to try and work them out with the client is really valuable because if you understand, yeah. you know, their values or what they value, you're going to have a better idea of why they're engaging in stuff as opposed to just the fact that they are and then putting our, going back to the, the start, like putting our, um, you know, contextual, like our relationship. So what's my relationship with 
drugs. If I think if in my whole life that they're really bad and you shouldn't do them, then that's the perspective that I'm going to put onto that. But if I'm able to put that aside for a second and have a chat with this person about what their relationship is with drugs and alcohol, whatever it is, and understand why they're engaging in it. Like I worked with a guy and he, he tends to be my example for this for a lot, who really, really enjoyed the feeling of being on drugs. But when we explored it, it was more around that it was filling a social need for him. Like he would get a heap of drugs and then people would come to his house to use them. And he like that was him. He had friends. Like people were coming around to see him and hang out with him for I don't know how quality time it was, but people were coming around to see him. And for him, <laughs> that dumb. for him that was important. Like if he, there was a few instances instances where we were able to highlight where people would come around and there was no drugs involved, and he still got that same like happy feeling out of it. So the in in that case, and he struggled to recognize that at the start was that the drugs weren't they were just a medium for getting people to come around and be social they weren't the reason they weren't the the driving factor because if people were coming around and seeing you anyway he didn't need them he didn't care yeah didn't even think about them yeah and it's important because before i'd started working with him the treatment plan i guess you could call it was this guy every time he tests positive needs to go into hospital and i'm like what what purpose is that serving and it just it just tell it just tells me that we sometimes struggle with actually understanding a person's circumstance and i personally think that values are a really important a massively important part of context like that we need to understand And I just, it, it totally is. It, uh, it's it's where it's the core of everything that we do as OTs. And I think where we get in trouble, like where we get in trouble, is um, unless you're exploring your part or your part in the equation as the OT, you're getting fused with your thinking about your judgments and your values that this person shouldn't be doing drugs. And so that's where you have to you you know use these processes to um, accept your own uncomfortable feelings coming up about this person and and what you think that you should do. So uh, what you think they should do, but also looking at how that worked. And there was a nice example of looking at how the drugs worked for him and the social piece. And we so often miss it by looking at the topography of the behavior instead of the function of it, right? 100% could not agree more. Yeah, so values is core. It's where the the rubber hits the road, kind of moving towards kind of a meaningful life, which is where the committed action comes in, right? So all of this is just nothing really if you're not going to do do the part that matters to you. And and I find like people don't want to talk about this part. Okay, why? Right? Why? My clients' meaning because it's 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 harder to um, do something different because then all these uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, memory sensations show up and um, and you have to actually practice what you've been talking about, right? It's, it's similar to getting a list of kind of sensory strategies while well, you have to kind of know when to put those in place for them to be helpful, right? And you have to do them. You can't just kind of say them. Because saying strategies um, is much different than doing them. Yeah, for sure. So 
what's the well, I guess what's the difference between making a committed action and just coming up with an action plan kind of thing? What's the difference? Uh, that one's on paper and one you're actually doing the experience of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's the experience that you get the feedback of of um, how it worked and if you want to do it again, you know, like um, that's the that's the experience of it instead of just saying that you're going to do it. There's a whole different, you're using your whole body and you're getting that internal feedback. So this is the engagement aspect of it. That's right. Yeah. And this is where the values and the committed action is just so cool with OT, mm-hmm. right? It's just, this is, um, we're already doing these these processes for sure. Yeah. So this right now is you doing committed action to engage in doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I, did, I did what mattered, you know, and now actually now what have we been talking for about an hour? Yeah, about that. I don't really notice too much uncomfortableness internally. See, easy as that. Told you it'd be easy. Yeah. I gave you my context, put my slant on it, and it hopefully (laughs) prayed that it wasn't going to be too different from what you experienced. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's good that we can – Talk because I really want to know more about how what you've heard me say, um, and also with uh, with act. You know, we do use a lot of metaphors, and that's where I kind of like that kawa kawa, right? Yeah, yeah. how I pronounce yep. it. Yeah, and that's what you're involved in. So, um, did you see any more overlapping things? Like we use metaphors to kind of um, get over that language, so we're not getting caught up in language. Yeah, so I think. The- the kawa is probably a bit different, but I think it could probably be used in conjunction with. Um, which stage would it fit? I think the kawa would probably be best in one of the earlier stages, probably around. You could use it for the cognitive cognitive diffusion or or acceptance. It's it's more around. It, it's a tool that's really good for self-reflection of your own situation and what's going on Um, because it looks at uh, different categories of things that can affect your engagement essentially so or flow as the kawa calls it so it'll look at discrete circumstances which are you know things that like the rocks in the metaphor which can interrupt your flow which might be you know i got an injury or um it could you know, I can't think of anything at the moment. I'm not. Oh, how much are you getting paid? Whether you're not getting paid, you're getting paid below minimum wage or that kind of thing. Um, there's the river banks, which can also have an impact on how much water is flowing through, which is generally the environmental stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm living in a poverty-stricken area, or you know, I'm living in government housing, or whatever it is. Um, I got a not very supportive family that kind of stuff, that environmental stuff. Uh, and there's, But there's also uh, what in the model is called driftwood, uh, which is personal attributes, and they can be positive or negative, so they can be used essentially to try and, uh, during the process, to, to free up more space. So it can be, you know, I'm really driven or I'm a chronic procrastinator or I, you know, am really good at managing money, those sort of personal attributes of the, of the person. 
So mm-hmm. I think I think it would be useful. I mean, that's that the personal attributes is really good because you get a good idea, or you start to get a good idea of the person's values. The issue is just doing it straight like that at times is hard for someone to open up because values isn't something that people usually think about. Like if I mm-hmm. just if I just went up to you and said, what are your values? And you've never thought about it before. You're like, oh, shit, I don't know. I like ice cream. Like <laughs> like who knows what their values are like right. off the top or of that. Or they head. think you're meaning something from a religious kind of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm Catholic. I'm like, oh, okay. But <laughs> Unless you're like, yeah, yeah, there are some patterns, but they're going to still be different for everyone. So that's yeah. the only thing with regards to how they might work together that might be a bit different. But I think the personal attributes, because it's not just values as well, it's like thing, it's kind of like strengths and weaknesses as well. It gives you a, a talking point to be able to explore, and you can probably get some of those that values type information from that. Um, yeah, cool. But I like it because what it does is it takes a person's situation and it doesn't focus on the specific event. So, for example, uh, we'll stick with a podcast example. For example, you're really nervous before you start doing this podcast, etc. For you or for most people in their head, it's the podcast is making me anxious. Like doing this podcast is making me anxious. What the Kawa does is it's, it essentially forces you to step back and take a look at the broader circumstances what's going on around you what other things might be impacting um, your your I guess nervousness to engage in this occupation and what you can do then is you might not be able to make any changes to the fact that you're about to do the podcast that that rock that stone may stay the same size but there's other things around that that you might have, be able to influence to create more flow, to allow more water through that that river. Yeah. So, yeah, like- you know, it might be the fact that, you know, you live in a share house and it's really noisy during the day and you're worried that you're not going to be able to do it. So, you know, we can move the time or we can adjust where you do it, that kind of thing. Similar, like most OT things, we can person occupation environment like we can adapt any of those things to try and reduce so we're not necessarily able to shrink the anxiety or the 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 barrier that is the event itself but we can affect things around it that can open up enough flow that you're able to easily i guess work around that yourself so it, i do see some similarities with this from that point cool. of view um, but they, and I think they could be used quite well together, especially in those initial stages where you're trying to, I guess, nut out what's actually going on here. Yeah. And just, um, yeah, to, you, you made me think about the context before we started was I was nervous Jax was going to come and, and talk. So I set him up with his game and got him a cookie and we danced. We actually had a big dance off before, <laughs> which probably helped me and him. So we danced to our favorite song. Why don't we have that on video? God, that'd be amazing. It was the same song. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and that's- my favorite song and his favorite song. We danced and then I got him set up and he hasn't come. But there was, there was something that I was concerned about right and coming so it, that definitely was interrupting my my feeling of flow now yeah. that I'm and now I'm more in it and that's that's um, a perfect example like you're not it hasn't actually changed the podcast itself or the effort or you know mental capacity that it takes to do the podcast itself but you've changed 
some of the circumstance around that to create more flow to be able to, you know, do this or engage in this occupation more easily. Yeah, cool. Um, and then also I just wanted to to say that um, with the six processes, the way that I explained it, I might have given the impression there was kind of these first two, then you do this and then you do that, but it's a circular it's a circular model. So you could come in into the values and the committed action first, right? Or you could do, do you see what I mean? Or yeah, a lot yeah. of the time, a lot of the processes together. So it's not really, it, you start where the client's at. Yeah, in, yeah. In the context, right? So I just wanted to make that clear for the listeners too. Yeah, so I, I, I can definitely see, and I think this is why I was kind of, and I haven't done the training, but it's been on my to-do list forever. I'm just slack. But I think that's like there was a lot. I worked in a team just before I took this job that had, I think, three or four. We had, it was very OT heavy. I think we had about five OTs in our team. But I think at least three or four of them had done ACT training, like the, oh, the cool. ACT training with, I think it was with Russ. So it was something that I guess the values and the concepts of it kind of, resonated throughout the team that I was working in anyway. Yeah. And it was something that I always I I liked it because I could see so I, I've got a thing against OTs bringing therapies in that yep yep okay yeah this is really helpful things like CBT. One of my big gripes with CBT is yeah you can do CBT. That's fine. I have no issue with you doing CBT but don't call it OT. Like you're not there's there's nothing OT about CBT. Yes, some people might find it helpful. That's great. That's doesn't make it OT just because you are an OT. Yeah. Like I, yeah. you know, I I do powerlifting. That doesn't make powerlifting an OT intervention just because I happen yeah. to be an OT at the same time. Like whereas this, I, I like therapies that yes, you can bring stuff in from other professions or outside yeah. of the profession, but. I like that you're able to adapt it and that it kind of melds with OT. Yeah. To me, that's when it's OT. So in my practice, I used to use uh, things like Solution Focus Brief Intervention, which is originally a social work uh, intervention. But I, the way I use it, I use it in a very occupation-based manner. Like I'm not using it the same as a social worker would use it or a psych or whoever else is using it. And I see actors are very similar to that in that yeah. You, know, you can, if you took acts that's being run by a social worker or by a psych and by an OT, it should look different. Like yeah. OTs running, yeah, OTs running acts is very occupation based. You can run it yep. looking at engagement and really helping people to engage in, you know, those things they want, need, and expected to do. Whereas, yeah. you know, from a social worker's point of view, they'd be, running it, looking at, you know, social engagement in the family system and that kind of thing, whereas a psych would be looking at, you know, they might be doing work with trauma or, or something, whatever it is. But they'd be, they, it, it's a tool that I think melds with your current skill set. It's not just an addition to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. And they say, um, you know, with that, um, you know, you, you keep your own clinical wisdom, mm. Uh, for sure, you, you're under your own, um, you're under your college's license, you don't have to get any new license, but you're just incorporating these six evidence-based processes into what you what you already do, whereas with CBT, it was a lot more rigid, and um, 
you know, more technique. Now, ACT, ACT does have those technique kind of things, but you don't, you don't have, I mean, you don't have to use them like that. You can be creative and, I, and you come up with things in the moment, even in the clinical conversation. There's lots of information on that. But with CBT, um, of, of course, I mean, the part that um, the cognitive restructuring isn't even, there's absolutely no evidence that that even works at all. And it's actually the more of the um, exposure and stuff like that that work. But then you're going to uh, bring in the clinician in the mix too. Yeah. What is the clinician doing in the room as well? That could be the agent of change uh, right there, not necessarily the therapeutic modality, right? And so, um, yeah, with that, it's just a lot more flexible. That's what I like about it. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and you could incorporate it, look different for every OT. It really does. It looks different for me than than how you might use it with your students or in other areas of, of life, right? And at the university here, at the Alberta University, they do have the um, they do a couple of introductory sessions on ACT. Okay. Uh, yeah, not wouldn't be regarded as training, but the it's the OT there or the lecturer there is just introducing it as a concept, something that's more flexible and maybe a little bit more congruent than these other ones. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. I know a few people that have worked at that uni over the over the time. Yeah, no, it, it's something that I could definitely see. Like there's some of the concepts individually that I do cover because I teach uh, some mental health content in our course. But like I do teach about values and how that relates to occupation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we do do a bit on, a fair bit actually, on like self-reflection and because one of the other things that I'm a firm believer in is that we aren't as self-reflective as we might think that we are we're not as good at it as we think we are so and yeah. and one thing i've always told my students is you don't know what impact you're having on a client that you're working with if you don't know where you're at that's right if you go in there you could be the best therapist in the world at you know analyzing information that you're getting and working out people's values and finding out where they're at but unless you know what you're bringing into that room you don't know at all. You don't know what impact you're having on those results. Yeah, at all. That's, you know, Scott Miller's feedback forms, right? Yeah. That was, I've yeah. actually talked about his stuff a lot. And I've, because I heard about his stuff oh, years ago. Well, it's solution focused. Yeah, yeah. But I'd forgotten who he was until you just reminded yeah. me. Straight away, I'm like, oh, that's the name of, because I remember there was a research thing that I saw him post on his website or something that talked about uh, the, and I've talked about it on this podcast multiple times, about the percentages of things that make up a positive therapeutic outcome and that yeah. 60% of it was just building that relationship. And I've quoted that a thousand times. I could never remember yeah. who it was until you, as soon as you said the name before, I'm like, God, oh, that's it. I remember now. Even higher. I think the percentage is even higher for, and then not only the therapeutic uh, rapport, but he even separated the burden of mm. the, and the 97% was our burden. Zero mm. percent was, was theirs for creating a meaningful kind of therapeutic experience that, that, creates change right so. and that was it and i think from memory it was years ago again that i looked at this stuff or it was presented to, it was actually presented to me by one of the therapists that had done the act training in our team 
Um, yeah. But I, like, it was like only 10% was the actual modality that you were using. Like, oh, yeah. That was it. That's right. Like, so, That's right. you know, building the relationship and getting to know the person and, you know, making them comfortable and trust you and that sort of stuff or helping them trust you. You can't make them trust you, but was bigger by like six times or six or seven times than the actual whatever you did. You didn't really, like, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing that and just going, that makes so much sense, but it still seems so counterintuitive. Oh, it totally. And I'm loving, I got this book. Um, I got it a cu- just when it was released and it's the, on the movie model, you know, the psychoanalytic OT group psychodynamic or whatever and that's where it kind of brought me back to the object relations you know that I'd learned and I always was kind of like drawn to that sort of stuff but that movie model was not not um really around you know what I mean but that's where it's tapping into is what's going on between me the client and the task and and the biggest percentages in between us and them right so yeah I have to get out that book again it came out in 2014 I think it's really good. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. It's not not something that I've come across yet. I'll have to have a look. It's, yeah, it's called the uh, the psychoanalytic OT or occupational therapy and, and psychodynamics or something like that. Okay. I have to yeah psych psychoanalytic within OT. That's what it's called. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, because yeah, cool. I've just found nice. that there's not a lot, and I think that's where OTs in mental health get stuck is. There's not a lot of that kind of content that has been tailored to OTs. OTs aren't the greatest at looking outside of the profession, for one. We we constantly seem to feel like if we can't find it at an OT journal, then we can't do it, which isn't true. You're allowed to use your own brain and work things out. But I think I'll, I think that's where we get stuck is with things like CBT and DBT is because they're pretty much the only things that some OTs have actually published research in. And because it's in an OT journal, we're like, yep, sweet. When there's so much out there that actually fits better with OT that, yes, might not necessarily have as much published evidence within OT, but we just don't, we don't, we, it's not even on our radar in a lot of cases. We're not even, because we're not even looking outside of the profession for evidence, then we don't even see it. And I think that's where one of the benefits of, I see of this sort of grey literature type stuff like this podcast or blogs and that kind of stuff is highlighting to people like there's a lot of cool shit out there that we don't even see. And a lot mm-hmm. of cases, it's probably better and more effective than the stuff that is published in OT journals. Not saying that's always the case. Please don't jump down my throat. But we need to be able to look far and wide, and but we need to be critical enough to be able to go, well, okay, yeah, I can actually meld this with OT or... You know, this might be effective, but it's probably not for me. Like we need to, yeah. we need to be able to discern the difference. And I think that's where OTs, one, we don't look outside the profession nearly enough, and we're not, and we're, and we're not critical enough, or good enough, uh, to be able to work out whether or not it, it's going to fit or not in a lot of cases. Yeah, and then it all depends on the context, right? So somebody might look at what I'm doing and they work in a different context and be like, she's not working as an OT. But 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 what you do in your context is different to what 
I'm going to do in Brian and what makes sense with the whole team and what they're doing and the bigger picture of things, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and also with these other communities like CBT, DBT, they're not they're not looking to gain anything from us, you know. With um, with with the ACBS community. Uh, they want something from us. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's like, no, you're an OT, you stay an OT. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. can you teach us? We're open, we want to hear you guys cont- uh, more contextual. Like what, can you add in some some stuff around um, sensory things or values or where can you add to our us as well? It's not just, yeah. they don't, yeah. And that is something I really appreciate because you hold your, your, um, you know, you can still have your own professional wisdom. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I am very driven to do the training now, and I will get to it. I'm keen. Yeah. I'm keen. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And then you can come join my um, special interest group, and, and you can input into the discussions there, which are uh, great, you know, just hearing how other people interact and put, act into their context it's interesting yeah yeah no I'm um I had a nice experience today thank you for kind of helping me out with that and I definitely don't mind people contacting me if they are wanting more information but I do run that Facebook page right and there's a lot of act and OT stuff on that it's called occupational therapy and you know like one of those squirrely what are they called and act I don't know what that is called, actually. I should know that. <laughs> it's a weird, yeah, you know what I mean, right? One yeah, of those yeah. curly ends. Yeah. And then at ACT. And so that's the open Facebook page for people. It's joined the association, but it has a different function than um, that we're creating another closed group one just for ACBS members. And so if you want to become a part of the ACBS, they have tons and tons and tons and tons of resources and it's sixteen dollars a year and up. It's you know, like I pay the full amount because I get lots of value out of it. But it's sixteen dollars and up, and there's so much information on there. But um, we'll be making a closed Facebook group, like the physios have a closed one, um, where they share more academic things. Um, and then my Facebook page is more intro people that aren't um, that wanting to just see content, you know, and it's got some. Uh, different types of things I post around ACT and OT, actually. Not together. We're getting there with togetherness, but I try to relate them. So I've just found your Facebook page, and I don't know whether this is deliberate or whether you know that, but the picture that you've used in your header, I made that. Shut up. <laughs> I, I stole it from you, yeah. and I didn't reference you. No, 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 you don't have to reference me. I have a, on my website. There's a whole heap of what I call musings, uh, really? and that's one of the ones I made <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> that I love that because I felt like that really, really showed act and OT together. Because that that river, that, well, that's Michael Awama's, I guess, definition of OT kind of thing. But that river's yeah. the, it's the Daintree River up up near where I live. I just saw that. I'm like, that seems like too much of a coincidence. She's done this deliberately. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Well, there you I go. I see. A bit bad. I was like, some OT made this, and it's probably like, look at her pretending that she did it. Nah. But it was you. It okay, was me. Right, so it's all fine. It doesn't. It's fine. So that's 
that's the page where if they if people want to know and they can message me on there if they want to know anything more but there is you know lots of trainings and how can people join your or how do they get to the stage where they're able to join your special interest group and that kind of thing you have to go to the um the acbs website which would be through that facebook page yep um through there and join up and it's value-based so 16 dollars or up whatever you want to donate for the year and there's just so many awesome resources in there and then you would just join the six so there's lots of different six i love the compassion focus one there's a child and youth one there's a psychosis one there's there's, there's diversities uh one is there's tons tons of them is it based in canada or is it kind of worldwide or it's world. It's international. Yeah. So the um, the world conference this year is in Dublin, and unfortunately, um, I had to. I did have my tickets to go, and I really wanted to go, but I, I can't. Um, but it's in. But it's in the states next year, so I'm going to go. Is there any uh, book, mainly, I guess, that you think would be a good starting point for anyone that you know is curious or would like to? What have we got? The ACT Approach. Timothy Gordon. Comprehensive Guide to Acceptance and Commitment Therapy by Timothy Gordon. Yeah, so that is, um, it's just new out last year. It's, it really shows how to use it as an approach more than a technique. Yep. And it's simple and it is so well. I can see you like it because it's full of highlighting. <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love it. Like every part, I was like, oh, my God, I love this. But. <laughs> Yeah, a bit over the top. I lo- like I just loved it, and also he he did the um, Act in Context podcast. So if you go on YouTube and look up um, Act Act in Context yep. podcast, uh, they they do they talk about uh, they have lots of Act people come on and they talk just like we are doing. Awesome, too easy. Well, this has been a blast. This is fun. I like it. I feel like I've learnt so much. Oh, and I've learned lots from you too. <laughs> I have. I have. It's reciprocal, so that's always a good thing. No, that's awesome. Thanks so much for, for agreeing to work through your anxieties and come on the podcast. <laughs> well, I brought it with me because I'm glad this you is did. what matters, right? So I brought it with me. It's not that it, it's not that it, it, it goes away, but um, it was a nice exposure and graded exposure experience for me, for sure. We should do another one at some point. Do like a more advanced. Oh, why don't I do an? Why don't I do a? Um, why don't I do an experiential activity with you? We can do vulnerability. That. You know, vulnerability. Brene Brown. We can do that. Make me cry on my own podcast. That'll be fine. 